The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. So if we get to a world where more and more industries and more and more countries are covered by carbon taxes, and some of those carbon taxes can be paid in kind of financing emissions somewhere, a reduction somewhere else, that will unlock huge, huge amounts of money. And the, the economic rationale for this is that it is, generally speaking, cheaper to decarbonize in emerging markets. That was Harvard University fellow Eli Sandler talking about how the much maligned carbon credits market could yet play a key role in scaling up finance to advance the global green transition. Welcome to Exchange. I'm George Hay, EMEA editor at Reuters Breaking Views. This week I'm joined by Eli Sandler, a former Morgan Stanley banker who's now a fellow at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government and policy advisor to E.ON's climate finance subsidiary Seagrass. Eli is well placed to comment on the potential but also the problems of carbon markets which have received a particular kicking over the last year amid concern over the integrity of credits in the voluntary carbon space. But he's also an authority on global negotiators' attempts to set up what he calls an eBay for carbon credits, and why that isn't very easy. Yet despite these so-called Article 6 talks making slow progress, there are plenty of promising projects going on that will help the market develop. Not least the seagrass grid infrastructure one in Rwanda Eli is working on himself. Eli, uh, welcome to The Exchange. Thanks, George. Great to be here. Great. Well, I thought we'd just start by um, contextualising where we are with carbon markets at the moment. And, I mean, what strikes you, if you look, especially over the last year, there's been some pretty rancid press coverage of uh, the voluntary market, the voluntary carbon markets in particular. I just wondered how how you, first of all, what do you um, think about uh, where we are specifically on the voluntary side of um, carbon markets are they are they kind of hold below the waterline damage beyond repair or would you be much more kind of enthusiastic or how, how do you think about them first of all yeah it's a great question it's it's really important i think the first thing i would do is maybe have one second to think about why we have carbon markets what do they do and how do they fit into the the broader theme of financing the energy transition so um there's a lot of different estimates out there of how much money we need to raise and how much money needs to be invested into clean infrastructure. Broadly speaking, we can call this climate finance. This is defined in many different ways by the OECD, by by bankers, by the private sector. But we know that we need trillions of dollars of investment in things like renewable energy, EVs, um, development in, in emerging markets. And one piece of that is monetizing the emissions benefit of investment, which is kind of economists speak for paying people to either emit less CO2 or remove CO2 from the atmosphere. And so one lever that can be pulled by policymakers and by projects to get access to capital is using the fact that they're emitting less CO2 to be paid to do uh, clean development work or something like this. And so in many ways, um, all progress on carbon markets can be seen as a positive, in my opinion, because we're getting more money to projects that do good things in the world. Um, So really, really high level, 30,000 feet, what carbon markets do is present another tool, another financing instrument for uh, anything from utility scale, renewable energy to off-grid uh, biogas projects. Now, this is one lever that can be pulled by policymakers along with, let's say, multilateral development bank loans or carbon pricing or everything else. And so we shouldn't try and view carbon markets as a fix-all for everything. It's one tool. Um, specifically, though, about, about voluntary carbon markets, uh, 
the reason I started with that introduction is that I think they should be seen in the context of um, how big a problem we're facing and in many ways how small the voluntary carbon market at the moment. So for people in the market, either because they're benefiting from the, the, the cash, so this is a developer doing cook stoves or electrification of buses or something like this, um, voluntary carbon markets are a great source of funding and thus it's very important. Equally for financial players that are really deeply involved in the market, let's say traders or brokers or dealers, Obviously, the day-to-day -day minutia of what's happening in carbon markets is important. However, for, for most of the, the listeners to this podcast, what we care about is raising trillions of dollars of climate finance. And at the moment, the voluntary carbon market is about $2 billion. So um, as you know, I, I, I teach and research at Harvard. And when we think about, let's say, a, you know, a, a target of, of $6 trillion, um, $2 billion at the moment is a very, very, very small part of that. And so when I think about what's going on in voluntary carbon markets, they really matter for the world to the extent that they can hugely, hugely scale. So this is how I think about the kind of the scandals or, or whatever we want to talk about. Um, what matters is whether or not these are going to hold back carbon finance from reaching trillions of dollars. Um, the, the price fluctuations in this project are going bad and that project are going bad. To me, this is um, an indication of whether or not we're going to get to high integrity financial instruments that allow you to um, get to really ambitious climate goals. But I'm not super concerned at the moment just because the volumes of capital are so small. Right. So they are, they are small, as you say. But, um, uh, I mean, there's a bit of a, presumably a bit of a chicken and egg problem. Um, the more there are kind of discredited projects or projects that don't um, do what they're supposed to, um, and, and that's seen to be the case, then um, presumably the harder it gets to scale but um i mean do you i suppose i suppose my, my question really is is just um to what extent do you see i mean you you look at a lot of these things um do you see plenty of, of reasons to be positive as well as kind of negative about this particular voluntary bit of the carbon market so let's I, let's, let's go into specific details we have a lot of projects where a developer has come in and received money from a, a corporate source or an airline looking to offset its emissions or something like this to um, to fund, let's say, cook stoves or to protect trees from deforestation. And what's happened is either the amount of CO2 that's been credited, i.e. the amount of carbon in the air that we think um, has been removed by the trees or not emitted because of the change from, let's say, burning charcoal to using electric cook stoves, that's been inaccurately calculated. Um, that is really bad. This means that some companies are claiming to have offset X tons, 100,000 tons, a million tons of carbon, when actually there has not been that kind of um, impact on the world. And that is bad in the sense that uh, companies are making kind of a mis-selling claim and potentially there's been money spent that wasn't spent effectively. So it's a waste of resources that could otherwise have done something much more useful in the world. And I think the, the point I think you're getting at is this could be a much greater problem because there is the potential for carbon finance to fund really large scale transformation. But if these instances we've already seen are not doing what they say they are, and the only way that the public and the only way that policymakers and the only way that companies interact with them is through scandals, it's going to kind of depress uh, a nascent market. Now, um, the reason though that I'm, I wouldn't say I'm not concerned about the projects themselves. I think we should pay as much attention as we can to the integrity of every project. But the reason that I don't think that these issues affect really the direction of whether or not carbon markets in general are going to get, get big is because of 
the way in which carbon markets are going to become not a 2 billion, not a 20 billion, not even a 200 billion um, financing opportunity, but something that, again, like loans from the World Bank or like broader types of climate finance, we can actually use to fund the energy transition. Um, the reason I'm not super concerned is because I think there has to be a huge step change in how we think about what it is that carbon markets do. So at the moment, as you've said, and maybe just taking a step back, we have voluntary carbon markets. And what that means is that a company, um, often from its kind of sustainability budget or its marketing budget or the kind of the corporate resources part of the business, says, we want to do something good and we want to offset our emissions. And on average, they're paying something like two to three dollars a ton for offsetting their CO2. Now, if you compare this to what uh, you have in carbon taxes around the world, so upwards of $80 in the European Union, um, it's scaling up in somewhere like Singapore to 30 or 40, um, California, at, again, 30 or $40. And then the, the estimated price that these things should be calibrated at to reach ambitious goals is well over 100. So you have this huge step divide in um, voluntary offsets, which I basically think of as a voluntary tax. So, OK, they're buying an offset and they're funding a project, but essentially a company is saying, for however many tons of CO2 I emit, I will pay an amount of money. And that is essentially a voluntary tax. But the, the problem is that at the moment, the voluntary tax is much, 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 much lower than um, what we, we, we currently set compulsory taxes at and what we need carbon taxes to be at to, to reach ambitious transition goals. And yeah, so and presum and presumably from the um, from the perspective of the buyers, that's um, that's kind of inverted commas good because you're not paying so much. Right. But um, it's it's it's, ba it's bad if it's bad if people therefore think, well, you're buying you're buying the kind of right to look green for pittance and um, it's not really meaning anything. So that's your, your, your kind of wider point, right, is that you, you know, that the more, the more that we can kind of scale up these things and make them credible, then the more valuable they will become and the more people want to buy them, right, presumably? Um, ooh, so, I, so I think, um, actually, I would, I might make the opposite point, which is that there's one, there's one view of the world, which is um, corporates want to offset 100% of their emissions. You know, we've got real momentum on sustainability from the likes of um, airlines, gas companies, whatever it is. And they are willing to pay however much it takes to offset their emissions, whether it's $3 a ton or $50 a ton. They're basically voluntarily paying a carbon tax. That's one view of the world. The other view of the world is that corporations are willing to set aside a certain amount of money, be it $5 million or $10 million per corporate, you know, a very small percentage of their revenue. And they will spend that on sustainability goals. Now, these two kind of view of the world have very different implications for how we think about what's going on in voluntary carbon markets. If what's going on in voluntary carbon markets um, is seen as a problem, this is the fact of holding back corporates going up to spending hundreds of billions of dollars and trillions of dollars on, on voluntary carbon offsets. And if only we could think of a better methodology and only we could really, really test these projects, actually then companies would go from spending you know, less than 1% of their gross income or net income on on sustainability goals to much, much more because they're confident in the projects. That's one view. And the other is that, you know what, they're going to spend a certain amount of money. It's relatively small. And it's a shame that they're not spending it on more effective projects. But really, the thing holding back corporates from spending billions of dollars isn't that we don't have the perfect methodology and the perfect monitoring system. The thing holding back corporates from spending billions of dollars is that corporates don't voluntarily spend billions of dollars on, on sustainability. And I, I personally think that, um, unfortunately, that the latter of those two options is much, much, much more likely. And so it is a real shame that, that um, momentum and 
potentially resources are being spent on projects that are not effective. But I don't think that's the thing holding back the voluntary carbon market. I think that the thing holding back the voluntary carbon market is that it's voluntary. And so um, really what we want to do to scale up is to add a whole amount of one enforced demand. So basically taxing corporates and, and compelling them to, to decarbonize and maybe get their hands on high quality offsets. And two, deep involvement of regulators, be it at the United Nations level or the national government level, in securing the integrity of these credits. So just to go back to your first question, because I know I've been quite long winded, um, I, I really do care about the fact that there's projects that aren't doing things they say they are and that um, you have money being spent in potentially even fraudulent cases. But to me, the problem there is that amount of money is not being spent effectively rather than that being the thing that's holding back the voluntary carbon market. Because I think for the voluntary carbon market to scale, it needs to integrate is what we call compliance markets, uh, which is carbon pricing. And maybe we'll talk about that. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that, that kind of segues uh, effortlessly into the kind of a kind of key point which is relevant to what did or didn't happen at COP28 um, because uh, as I understand it and one way of looking at this is a, this attempt to kind of integrate what we're talking about here these compliance markets where you you have to you, you, you have to comply and you have to buy um, permits or credits uh, and the voluntary ones where you don't have to um, this is this is the part of this whole article 6 negotiations from the the Paris Agreement um, 2015, and maybe you could just kind of spell out what you what they are and what you think they, you know, how well that's going. Yeah, sure. So, so I think I'll, I'll add one more segue, which is that um, while I've kind of been uh, down a little bit on voluntary carbon markets, what I would say is that the infrastructure being built around these things, i.e., the corporate spending money and going through developers and going through carbon markets, um, that is completely necessary as a market infrastructure piece to get to the world where we have trillions of dollars of demand. So it's sort of a, a sequential um, progress where what voluntary carbon markets have done is basically enable policymakers to be able to put in place strictures on demand and supply that will actually turn carbon markets into a useful tool. Now, the way this relates to Article 6 is that, um, maybe taking a step back in case some of your listeners aren't familiar with the like incredible intricacies of, of carbon markets and, and UN um, dialogue, um, so in, in 2015, the Paris Agreement was signed uh, at a conference of the parties to the UNFCCC, to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. And this was basically the new climate agreement that aimed to uh, keep global warming to below two degrees, 1.5 if possible. And all countries under this agreement have a voluntary, it's called a nationally determined contribution, um, i.e. Uh, emissions reductions goal. The big change in the Paris Agreement from its predecessor which is called the Kyoto Protocols, is that countries choose their own emissions reductions goal. And they actually have chosen quite ambitious goals. So um, roughly speaking, you have advanced economies, US, Europe, UK, targeting a 50% emissions reduction by 2030, net zero by 2050. Um, emerging markets, um, they have much sort of slower emissions reductions goals, in part because obviously they have far fewer emissions today. We want them to be able to have time to decarbonize, to, um, to industrialize, and that takes emissions. And also so many of the historic emissions aren't from them. So it's, it's kind of in the interest of sense. And so you have all these different targets from different countries under the Paris Agreement. Now, Article 6 of the Paris Agreement, it's called that because it's the sixth article, is, um, is meant to be a way that if, let's say, you have the UK. The UK has a very, very ambitious uh, carbon emissions reduction goal, 50% by 2030. Um, 
And actually, the UK of all countries is, is doing quite well. And it's one of the few countries that, that might actually be on track to meet this goal. But let's say we're getting towards 2030 and the UK is not able to meet it, um, maybe because of lack of political will, but maybe just because decarbonizing is really, really hard. It's hard to transform your energy system uh, very rapidly. And so what Article 6 does, is it says that if the UK were to finance some emissions reductions in uh, another country, let's call it um, a country in, in Africa or in the Middle East, Rwanda, um, if it were to finance emissions reductions above Rwanda's target, i.e. Rwanda had its you know, 20% emissions reductions goal and the UK funds emissions such that it gets to 25%, those emissions reductions, instead of counting for Rwanda, could count for the UK. Now, this sounds a lot like carbon offsetting and it sounds a lot like a cap and trade system, um, which I think it's, it's very easy to, to poke holes at this and say, um, well, this is kind of paying to pollute and this is the UK buying its way out of its obligations. I personally think this is great. Paying to pollute is actually good. We, we should make polluters pay. And so the, the great thing about Article 6 is, one, it can get new capital into developing economies, because when we talk about funding decarbonization, what we actually mean is infrastructure. We mean new solar infrastructure, new transmission. So it's, it's development. So it's more funding for developing economies. It allows um, advanced economies, UK, et cetera, to... Uh, set ambitious goals that they can meet in part by funding emissions abroad. And then this means that the entire kind of pool of global emissions, uh, we, can, we can have more emissions reductions because it doesn't actually matter if, an, if a ton of CO2 is emitted in Rwanda or the UK. And so this was the theory of Article 6. It's sort of a win-win-win. It's a win for the UK because it gets to meet ambitious goals, win for Rwanda because they get more development funding, and a win for the world because we have less CO2. Um, the, 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 this was set out really, really, really high level in, in 2015. And then um, we spent the next kind of seven years or so negotiating it. There are two, and I, this is now going to get really policy wonkish, but, um, but you asked, George. Um, and so there are, um, there are two really, really important operative bits of Article 6. Um, Article 6.2, which basically is um, originally was conceived as sort of the mechanics of Article 6. So you have a bilateral transfer of emissions reductions. And without getting too much into the details of all the acronyms, et cetera, basically it governs how uh, Rwanda, in my example, can transfer emissions reductions that have occurred in Rwanda to the UK. So the UK counts them for their target and Rwanda yeah, doesn't. Country um, to country. Country to country, precisely. Um, and 6.4 was supposed to be this kind of central UN exchange called the Sustainable Development Mechanism, which I sort of think of as eBay for carbon credits. So a project developer, maybe private sector, maybe public sector, maybe a government, lists on this UN exchange, um, you know, it's a market exchange, a carbon credit. And then someone can come in and buy it. And the person that comes in and buy it, it can be a government or it could be a private company that is using this maybe to pay a carbon tax or it's using it for kind of offsetting purposes. Now, unfortunately, um, Article 6.4, this sustainable development mechanism, eBay for carbon credits, where all the trading was supposed to happen, um, that has yet to be set up. Now, the, the team working on it are brilliant and they really know what they're doing, but the UN setting up a, an exchange requires unanimous consent of all UN members. And it's an incredibly complicated process. So that is sort of marred in, in disagreement. And to and to and, and to put it to put it mildly, they they didn't really get very far at COP twenty eight in in nailing down, especially how six point four works, right? So precisely, yeah. We're, so the 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 rules of how six point four is supposed to be set up are still not determined, let alone actually setting the thing up. So mm. I think I think we're 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 way off six point four. So what um. The market started to do, and this is why in the beginning of my answer, um, again, I've, I've been speaking for a while, but you'll remember at the beginning of my answer, I talked about how voluntary carbon markets are 
um, useful as the infrastructure yeah. on which the, this thing can be built. What the market started to realize is actually the 6.2 mechanism, which governs a bilateral exchange of emissions reductions. This is super, super flexible. It's very, very short. It says that one country can transfer emissions reductions to another as long as they are real. They actually happened. They are verified. Someone's made sure they happen. And they're additional, i.e. they wouldn't have happened without carbon finance. And so countries start to say, actually, you know what? This looks a lot like the voluntary carbon market projects we already know how to do, just with some additional um, safeguards and additional government involvement. And so from um, roughly COP26 in Glasgow, countries started to say, particularly countries in Africa, so I'm thinking of Ghana, I'm thinking of Rwanda, realize actually they can use 6.2, this bilateral mechanism, either with another country or with another or with a company to um, get in some carbon finance that will fund really useful projects. And that was um, kind of basically finalized in Glasgow in 2021. Um, in my mind, it was actually like finalized to the extent that people can start doing this in COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh. Um, and then actually people, people have now begun to issue these Article 6.2 credits where, uh, let's say, a government comes in and hands over some cash to the, the Ghanaians um, or to a project developer and then in exchange they get emissions reductions or a company does. Now, what happened at COP28 was um, uh, there was no agreement on this Article 6.4, eBay for carbon credits. Um, we couldn't agree on a few specific things, what types of projects count, whether or not you have removals, whether or not you have nature-based solutions, um, some of the mechanics of setting the thing up. No agreement on Article 6.4. Now, um, this began to be seen by negotiators to some extent as a and I'm, I'm simplifying here because it was two weeks of unbelievably intense negotiation. But this began to be um, seen by negotiators sort of as a, a package deal. So they said, you know, there's a few things left to sign on for Article 6.2. These are very, very, very technical. These are things like what happens if the project fails and you need to cancel your emissions credit? Um, what do you do with cases of fraud? These are like very, very, very important issues. But they're sort of the plumbing. They're not philosophical differences. We, we, we roughly know how to solve them. It's, it's about the logistics. There aren't huge arguments. But because 6.2 and 6.4 were sort of seen as a package deal, um, there was no further agreement. And the way COP works is you like every COP builds on the other. Because what actually happens is that a decision is, is kind of incorporated into the body of international law associated with, with climate change. And, and there was not a further agreement. So actually what happened at COP is that we basically ended COP28 on carbon markets and on Article 6. The same point we ended COP27, which in my mind is actually uh, good enough to start doing some trade that we've already seen a, a whole bunch of them begin to happen. Well, I myself, um, along with uh, Seagrass, which is a company I'm, I'm, I'm working with, part of E.ON, announced is a, uh, a really large transaction, which is to finance the transmission line in Rwanda. Um, and, and this utilizes the fact that Article 6.2 is very, very flexible. So we've got a new methodology that's based on a paper I published from Harvard about using Article 6 to provide upfront financing. And we've been working with the Rwandans to um, basically raise financing for a transmission line that will allow a hydro plant to come online, bring more uh, renewable energy into the grid. Uh, people stop using, um, let's say, charcoal for cooking. Emissions reductions uh, occur. Now, this is actually like doable under what we have for Article 6.2 now. So all a very long way of saying um, what happened at COP was there was no real progress on 6.2 and there's no progress on 6.4. But there are already projects that are getting financed by this mechanism, big, big projects. And there were already buyers, both governments and um, private companies that are, that are using it. And we're actually getting more money flowing into more projects. So it's good. Right. So that makes, I mean, that's, that's, that's really helpful. I mean, the, I suppose the, the question then is, 
so even if we don't have like immediate complete you know the platonic ideal of a, a, a complete agreement on article 6 around the world and all that everything isn't completely nailed down um i mean how do we how do you think about the likelihood of going from you know you mentioned the the um, voluntary carbon market is ex- extremely small at the moment um mm-hmm. how do you get from there or what's how do you see how these kind of um uh, like the thing you're working on in rwanda but other other initiatives like it i mean how optimistic are you that you can kind of build on that really small two billion number and kind of move up to the kind of you know hundreds of billions trillions <laughs> so, i mean it's not all from the carbon market but you know that kind of direction are you are you positive and optimistic that you can get there and how do you get there yeah should I, I think let's go back to that um there's two views of the world on how uh private sector demand for carbon markets works either you have relatively limited government budget uh, uh corporate mm-hmm. budgets from a kind of a, a sustainable finance wing of a, of a company spending whatever it is they spend on carbon credits and that's kind of capped at how much they want to spend. And they'll spend it on nice, high-quality credits, but it's, it's a very limited amount of money. Um, I think the numbers aren't super clear, but last year, about $600 million of primary issuance of credits occurred, i.e. people actually putting in money to new projects. So $600 million. Mm-hmm. While it's not nothing, it's, um, it's like smaller than a single gigawatt soda field. So this is, this is not the way to finance the energy transition. So either we have that, or we have um, companies have what you could think of as carbon liabilities. So they have a whole bunch of emissions that have they have to somehow pay for and they have to account for. Um, and they will pay whatever it takes to match those carbon liabilities with carbon assets, sort of like you could think of it as balance sheet accounting. Now, um, if, if we stay in the world of the first situation where there's a, a voluntary commitment from corporates and it's relatively low, um, it is very, very helpful for Article 6. So for example, some of... The projects are being announced now under Article 6. They are being bought by companies that are putting in voluntary um, uh, carbon commitments. And they're coming in and they're financing these things, and that's good. And it, it helps the market to get off the ground. Um, there's a whole side note about, to return to that Article 6 debate, and this was one of the, the conversations at COP, is whether or not private companies are even eligible to participate in Article 6.2 and the definition of a party under the, the conference of the parties, but let, let's ignore that for a second. So we have um, we have a whole bunch of voluntary equipment, and it is useful to get the market started. If that is the world we remain in, if the world we remain in is where there's some voluntary corporate commitment, and those are the things that drive carbon markets and drive Article 6, I am not extremely optimistic. I think it'll be one small useful thing to do some good work in some developing countries, but honestly, then the world should probably pay less attention to carbon markets because it's going to remain in the hundreds of millions or, or low billions. But there, there is a different option. And this is um, a really good example of this is something called Corsair. Corsair is the um, emissions trading scheme. The, you can also call it a cap and trade system. You can call it a carbon price that um, all airlines are subjected to. It's actually technically voluntary, but all airlines are subjected to this thing called Corsair. And this is basically a carbon tax for airlines. And um, there's, there's different phasing. We won't get into the specifics of it. But like the high level point is that um, increasingly, airlines are going to have to pay this carbon tax in Article 6 credits. So basically, you, you're an airline, you emit CO2. For every ton of CO2 you emit, 
you have to pay an Article 6 credit of one ton of CO2 that's taken CO2 out of the atmosphere somewhere else. And this means that the demand for why you need a carbon credit is completely different. It's no longer the chief sustainability officer. It's no longer the chief marketing officer. Now it's the chief financial officer managing her uh, carbon like liabilities, her carbon tax. And if Corsia succeeds, then you've got an entire industry where they have to offset their um, emissions basically through a carbon tax that is Article 6 credits. Now, aviation is about 4% of global emissions, so it's relatively small. And also there's free allowances, so it's not all the emissions, etc. But if this works, I think it's going to create a model where we sw swap into that second scenario. So you could have companies facing um, carbon taxes because they're exporting to the EU. For example, um, they have to pay the CBAM, the Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism. This is already the case in Singapore. The carbon tax, you can in part meet it with Article 6 credits. Um, there's a, a tax in, in Sweden, under, sorry, under in Switzerland, under something called the Swiss CO2 law, where motor oil importers, they have to pay their taxes in Article 6 credits. So if we get to a world where more and more industries and more and more um, countries are covered by carbon taxes, and some of those carbon taxes can be paid in kind of financing emissions somewhere, a reduction somewhere else, that will unlock uh, huge, huge amounts of money. And the, the economic rationale for this is that um, it is, generally speaking, cheaper to decarbonize in emerging markets. So just pure economist point of view, um, given that a ton of CO2 emitted anywhere does the same amount of warming, um, it becomes more economically efficient to finance decarbonization in emerging markets, which also have all these side benefits of development, than potentially to um, do it in developed economies. So this can become part of the way we like spend money efficiently. The last thing I'll say on, on this um, scaling point, and I know I've been, I've been going on for a while, is that um, if we got commitments from governments that part of their emissions reductions goals, they might meet by financing emissions abroad, that would also hugely scale up this market. So if someone like the UK were to say, you know what, currently we have a 50% emissions reductions goal, what we're going to do is we're going to make it 55%. And that extra 5% we're going to meet by financing emissions in emerging markets, almost like we have our international development commitments. And this can be paired with using British companies to do the development and whatever sort of climate diplomacy you want. If we, as well as the, that carbon tax piece I talked about, we also had governments committing to meet um, commitments that they've made legally binding under international law, that would also be a huge um, spur for the market. Because once you start talking about government budgets rather than corporate budgets, it's orders of magnitude more effective. So if those two things happen, we get um, carbon taxes that can be paid in, in carbon assets, like Article 6 credits, and we get government demand, then this becomes um, a multi, multi-billion dollar opportunity that we should care about a lot. So just, I mean, just lastly, really, I mean, the, the, this kind of idea of having this kind of Article 6 style language whereby you get these, this kind of trading of um, carbon taxes, carbon credits, carbon, uh, all the carbon markets coming together. Um, I mean, to what extent is that kind of uh, contingent on <laughs> uh, the countries of the world just generally getting on or rubbing along together in a way that is not obviously the case in some parts of it at the moment? Um, do you see what I mean? I mean, is uh, how much how workable are these kind of international carbon markets in a in a balkanized world? If you see what I mean, mm, I do. So I think I think if I can um, be bold, what you're really getting at is like geopolitical conflict, let's say between China and the United States. Um, People don't get along at big summit conferences like COP. Does this hinder either carbon markets and carbon tax cooperation or the fight against climate change uh, in general? This is kind of, I think, the, the super pressing question you're, you're, you're getting at. Um, 
so I, I will answer the question sort of in general about climate finance and about decarbonization, and then I'll get specifically into the carbon tax and the carbon finance piece. Um, I think there is a temptation to think that international collaboration and international diplomacy and statesmanship and summits, these must do loads of things in the world because they're they're impressive and they seem important and they're how we make diplomatic progress. Um, if the Paris Agreement had not been signed, I have no doubt the world would be in a worse place on decarbonization. But the Paris Agreement actually was signed. And so then if we look at the kind of cooperation that's happening now at COP, uh, you know, eight years after the signing of the Paris Agreement, it's either very technical things, like I talked about, kind of the Article 6 fraud um, prevention, which is, you know, it's, imp it's important, but it's very, very technical. Or it's things that actually are much more about signaling. So it's um, bilateral deals on investment, this kind of thing. So the first point is that actually most decarbonization and most investment in carbon finance is domestic. So what are the like big, big things that need to happen for us to radically cut emissions? Um, the United States needs to massively decarbonize. The way it's doing that, principally at the moment, the Inflation Reduction Act and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act. Not really to do with uh, relations with China, although we can come back to that. What needs to happen in China? Well, coal emissions need to peak. And then they need to have a state plan to decarbonize. They're building it. It's not much to do with the United States. Um, same goes for the European Union. Same goes for India. Um, so most decarbonization is actually just um, domestic policymakers having ambitious goals and implementing them. Now, there's some, there's some um, uh, international components here. In some ways, actually, geopolitics can help. Tension can help. So if you look at um, during the Cold War, when was um, higher spending on NASA? It was at the height of Cold War tensions with Russia because they were competing on um, the space program. So actually, in some ways, uh, international tension can help you reach very ambitious goals. The same goes for moments of geopolitical tension during the Cold War coincided with um, massive increases in U.S. foreign aid because they were trying to win the hearts and minds of, of um, the third world. So, so first of all, like, there is some extent to which it can help. But then also the, um, the flip side of that is that things like trade and um, uh, like green supply chains, which are necessarily global and do require co um, cooperation, let's say access to uh, rare earth minerals. Um, the United States needs a lot of things that China is involved in the supply chain in order to reach its decarbonization goals. Again, though, it gets complicated because what that's done is it's spurred massive investment in the US in these types of industries, which will eventually help decarbonization. So I think the answer actually on geopolitical conflict for uh, climate finances it's less significant than we think it is because a lot of the effort is, is domestic. And also, it's, it's actually not super clear if it's a good influence or a bad influence. The point about carbon taxes and, and carbon markets, so I, I do think you're right, which is that um, if I could snap my fingers and, and someone maybe sort of um, czar of the world for carbon taxes, we'd have this amazing um, harmonious regime. And this was actually the, the vision of Article 6 and particularly Article 6.2 of the Paris Agreement. You'd have lots of different carbon markets, carbon pricing schemes, and they'd all be interoperable. And what this would mean is that, that kind of markets can be used to find the most efficient emissions reductions. And we'd link all these carbon pricing schemes in ways that um, do not impose undue burdens on firms. They have the same kind of reporting requirements and um, they, they, they're, they're linked in, in the same way as maybe the EU and UK ETSs will be. Um, that is quite important. But actually, I, I don't think it's, it's negatively affected at the moment by um, geopolitical tensions because the stuff we've been talking about um, like what needs to happen for it to occur? Well, for example, the EU would need to um, allow Article 6 credits to be seen as something called an effective carbon tax, which means that you can 
you can retire an article fixed credit in lieu of paying a, a calm border adjustment mechanism. Or the if, if America, there are currently three bills in the US Senate that would impose um, carbon border taxes. Um, and if America were to allow, for example, certain types of carbon assets, maybe those from the energy transition accelerator, to be submitted, um, that would help carbon finance. But I don't think that's much to do with actual cooperation internationally. These are kind of domestic measures. And actually, it's, the cause and effect is kind of the other way around, because what this would do is it would spur more cross-border investment and cross-border collaboration. Same goes for if the US or um, Japan or another advanced economy were to really, really step up its investment in climate projects abroad. It, it, that is um, as much a cause as an effect of how kind of countries and, and diplomacy works. And that's why, for example, in the United States, through things like the JEPs, there's a lot of interest in, in fragile economies. Okay, well, I think that's a good place to uh, to uh, wind down. But um, uh, really appreciate you coming on the ex- exchange and uh, explaining all that stuff to us, Eli. Oh, such a pleasure. Thanks, George. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Oliver Taslich in London. Subscribe to The Exchange and our sister podcast, The Views Room, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Catch up with more of our views at breakingviews.com and on the X social media site where our handle is at breakingviews. I'm Kim Vanell. Join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the world. From the front line in Ukraine. Extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover. To the heart of U.S. politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.